I do like it when you have the whole story in an Old Testament reading, because sometimes you have one bit, bit and you need to know what happens next. I did shorten the reading. There is more what happens next, so do feel free to read the rest of chapter 12 and find out what happens next, but I was sparing you. One of my favorite comedians is Miranda Hart. I don't know if you've ever watched her program, Miranda. It's really glorious, innocent slapstick. And Miranda is quite a prude. She is unable to say the word sex out loud. She has to say it like this, sex. And every time, oh, sex, she hates it. And I must say, I feel a bit like Miranda up here this morning because it's so awkward talking about sex, isn't it? Anywhere, but let alone in church and for me, facing you guys. So give me some sympathy. But it's not just sex we're talking about this morning. It's even worse. It's adultery. And it's really uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable not just because it's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable because it's a really painful thing to experience and to talk about. And many of us may have experienced it for ourselves or in our families or amongst our friends. And even though the papers might be full of celebrity couples where their unfaithfulness is beamed out, we know it's not really entertainment at all. So why do we have to talk about it? Well, this summer we have been looking at radical holiness and we've been looking at radical holiness through the story of the life of David and through chapter 5 in Matthew with Jesus' teachings on the Beatitudes. And we have to talk about adultery because Jesus talked about it and because it's a real tenet of our faith. You know, there's a reason that it stood as a commandment right next to thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's because it's very serious. According to government polls, one in five British adults have had an affair and one in three have thought about it. And realistically, we in church are not exempt. We know that, don't we? But we still find it very, very hard to talk about it. But this morning, I'm not here to make us feel guilty or to bring up, stir up painful memories. I'm not here to frighten us into secrecy or to turn us into judges of others. And I won't today be looking at the intense pain and consequences of those who have suffered from the consequences of adultery. It's not my focus this morning, not because it isn't important. It is so important, and I would willingly talk and pray about that another time. But this morning, I want to see how God sees us as we struggle to live faithfully, faithfully to each other and faithfully to him within this community of his family. I want to explore how we can live differently and step forward into this radical holiness and bring his light into dark areas of our life like this. So let's just have a very quick review of our reading from 2 Samuel. David is the king of Israel. He was appointed by God and he's known to be a godly man. His army have gone to fight the neighboring tribes who were all around their land and threatened them. 
He remains in the capital, and one morning looking out, or one evening, he sees this beautiful woman. It has to be said, although it's a talk for another day, he didn't really just commit adultery, did he? It was a rape. He saw her, he wanted her, he had her brought to her, to him. So she would have had absolutely no option. He was the king and she had to obey. So there is no question that his behavior is appalling. She becomes pregnant and David made things 10 times worse. First of all, he tries to trick her husband into coming home and sleeping with her so he can pretend the child has nothing to do with him. Twice he tries to trick Uriah and then he has Uriah killed. How deep has David dug his pit? How far has he come from being this godly leader whom God put in place? Needless to say, God was displeased. But God didn't abandon him. He sent Nathan, a prophet, to help David face up to the mess he had made. And through this story of the rich man and the poor man and the sheep, God confronts David You can almost hear the grief in God's voice coming through Nathan's words, can't you? As he speaks about the betrayal. And David eventually is helped to understand the extent of his sin and to repent. And God spares his life. But as the passage intimated, and as you will know if you read on, The consequences of David's sin remain and are very painful. And then we come briefly to our lovely little reading from Matthew. Well, it's quite challenging, isn't it? All this fury, all this separation from God, all of this pain, you don't have to just act on your lust and your desires. You even thinking about it entertaining thoughts, allowing them to take root. That's just as bad, Jesus teaches us. So no place for innocent flirtations, for pornography, for inappropriate closeness or sharing of intimacies outside of your marriage. No place for glorifying or minimizing infidelity as we see in the media all the time. No place for gossip, for books or films or magazines or fantasies. That is really uncomfortable, isn't it? And so far from where our society is at the moment. So much has crept into our lives. So how can we make sense of this? And what chance do we have of living lives of radical holiness in a society like ours? How can we turn this negativity around into something godly. Well, let's just zoom out a bit and have a look at the context. Firstly, let's think about the Old Testament context. So Israel had been formed from a nomadic tribe of shepherds. God had called them personally to follow him, to become his people, to know him and to worship him. And he called them into this relationship of deep trust. And they had trusted him as they'd stepped out. They had to trust him for food and drink in the desert. They had to trust him for bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. 
They trusted him for the rules he gave them for everyday life. Rules that enabled them to live safely together. Hundreds of them with no other structures. Rules that helped him fulfill his promises to provide for them. And this close and loving relationship was a completely new way of relating to God. The other faiths and religions at the time did not have a God like this. They had fickle gods who played with humans. They were careless of humanity. But this relationship that God was forming was completely different. It was about closeness and trust and love and intimacy. It was all about relationship. And that's why God's law was so strict about adultery, because he knew that it went to the very heart of trust and destroyed trust in every way. But then God came to be with his people in a whole new way, as flesh and blood, as a person of Jesus. And this took that closeness and that intimacy to a whole new level. The old laws were no longer enough. Black and white, as it were, turns to color. And words on the page come to life in the person of Jesus. In the words of the theologian Tom Wright, Jesus unveils a whole new way of being human. A whole new way of being human that Jesus opened up for each of us. That by his own forgiveness of humanity on the cross. So how does David move forward from his devastating sin? Chapter 12, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord, says David. He has a genuine realization of what he has done, of the consequences, of the terrible rift in his relationship with God, the trust gone, the pain he has caused, and he repents. And remember, this is David, who loves God, who was chosen to be king, who slay a Goliath. He is brought low in the face of his sin. And with his confession, he begins his journey of repentance. And he wrote Psalm 51, which is one of the most beautiful psalms, I think, um, if ever you feel you need help in facing something about yourself you can't face, this is the one to go to, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Because he knows that only God can put him right. Humanly speaking, there's nothing even he as king can do to put things right. Wash away my iniquity, he says. Cleanse me from my sin. He has a real recognition of what he's done. Create in me a pure heart, he says. Do not cast me away from your presence. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. Because he knows what he has lost. His horror at his actions and his realization of the consequences give him this heartfelt desire to be restored to God. It is a radical repentance. 
And it's the moment when the light of God can begin to come in and shine on him again. And this is the way that that light gets into the dark places in our lives as well. Whether it is adultery or sins of any other nature, anger, bitterness, jealousy, envy, greed, unforgiveness, any of those dark things that we like to forget about, repentance is the way that the light can get in and we can start to be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, in the words of that beautiful old hymn. But I find repentance is not a word you often hear these days. I doubt very much if I've ever heard it outside of a church. And even in a church, I think it can be a bit easy with the familiarity of the liturgy for us to gloss over a bit. But if we do gloss over it, we may miss the deep and really important work that God needs to do in our lives and in the life of his church. Repentance is a threshold. It's the way we step into that whole new way of being human with Jesus. It's a step through to that radical holiness that we're called to. Repentance is necessary to step into the kingdom of God. Remember John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the doorway through to the kingdom of God. We can't have the kingdom of God without repentance. It might seem an old-fashioned and outdated word, but it's not. It's so important still. I don't know if you saw in the news a few months back, there was a Christian university in America, Asbury it was called, which had an amazing revival, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the students there. Some of us on the staff were fortunate to go to a leadership conference in London a few months afterwards, and some of the students came to speak about their experience. And what they told us was that the whole manifestation of the Holy Spirit was about repentance. God was calling these young men and women to repent. I mean, I looked at them. To be honest, they looked like butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. They were only about 20. I thought, what have they got to repent of? But they were being transformed by repentance. And then two UK uh, vicars very bravely spoke at this conference. They're, they're well-known leaders, lovely men, their churches are both in London, and they went to Asbury to experience this. And they said as they drove closer to the site, they felt compelled to stop the car and repent. And they repented to each other. Although they were good friends, they repented that they were each envious of each other's ministries. And they spent hours in the car confessing to each other and repenting to each other before they felt able to go closer. Repentance really matters. It is not a superficial thing that we pay lip service to. It is something that God longs to do in order to make us holy. And I think that the church is a community where we are called to be radically repentant. Not to take pay lip service, not to hide things or pretend things don't happen, but to confront them lovingly and generously 
and repent. And God looks at us with rose-tinted spectacles, who he is always going to love us. But he does have 20-20 vision. And there is nothing that we can hide. It's all there, and we need to bring it all to him. At this conference I mentioned after these students had spoken, we were invited to take some time in silence and repent for ourselves. Well, I sat thinking, well, not so much wrong with me. Can't think of any terrible sins I've committed recently. What am I going to repent of? But as we waited, God brought into my mind a, a tangled situation from years ago in my life. I thought, Lord, I did not think you were going to go there today. But in the silence, and a dear colleague just prayed over me, I felt God bringing light into this dark, tangled area that I had not thought about for, for, for years. And I, I cried, not ashamed to say, I cried. I began to feel the release of this situation in my life. So we do not need to give up on those difficult and confusing tangles in our lives, whether they're recent or whether from the years ago. We can't just ignore them or sweep them under the carpet. God wants to do something about them. And I don't know if any of you listen to Lectio 365 for your morning prayers. I sometimes do. And this week, there was this beautiful line that really struck me as relevant. The resources of heaven are poised to pour into my life. Repentance unlocks those resources so powerfully that I think we're foolish if we turn away from it just to preserve our image in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. Church, this community, us, this is a place, whether we've been coming a long time, whether we're just putting our toe in the water, this is a place where we should be able to let down our masks and face our past, maybe even our presence. It's a place where we should be able to meet the extraordinary grace of God through each other. We need to engage with repentance. There will be no healing. There will be no holiness if we hide from sin or pretend it hasn't happened. Forgiving and forgetting does not wash with God. Minimizing suffering does not wash with God. We need to engage with radical repentance. And then hand in hand with becoming a community of radical repentance, we need to be a community of radical grace. A community where it's safe for everyone to be honest in our failings and our sin. We have to be this community that God was creating where trust marks us out. It needs to be one of the most striking things about our community that people will say, there is a trustworthy community. Because where there is trust, God can bring restoration. And becoming a community of radical grace is not easy. It is challenging and it takes courage and honesty. We need to pray, we need to talk, we need to build honest friendships. 
We need to engage a little more openly with each other. We need to ask the difficult questions and be prepared to sit with a difficult answer. We need to keep confidences. We need to pray and encourage. Even a small thing, offering to meet someone for a coffee, can be a lifeline that they've been longing for. Galatians 6 tells us, brothers, sisters, folk, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. The word for restore is the setting of a broken bone. That's a two-stage process, isn't it? The setting of a bone. There's an event where the bone is set, and then there's the process of healing. And that healing needs a lot of things around it to be effective. And it's the same with sin when someone repents. The healing can start with the event of repentance, but needs the holding and loving and accountability surrounding it. That would be a place of radical grace if we can offer that. This is what Earl Wilson, who's an American pastor who uh, was discovered to have been having multiple affairs and sexual addiction. This is what he said of his Christian community as they helped his family afterwards. God's word is true. He refuses to let sin go without consequences, but he is also faithful not to leave us without his presence. In our case, Earl says, he was present through a few of our friends when we felt alone in any crowd. Although we were still terribly confused and I was in the darkness of denial concerning what I had done, God in his mercy and faithfulness had lifted his banner of love over us and was surrounding us with a wall of support and protection. That is the sort of church community we are called to be. Our radical holiness calls for radical repentance and for radical grace.